You know, recently a number of high-profile Christian musicians and worship leaders have renounced their faith in Christ. And they have been very public about it and talking about receiving some sort of a greater enlightenment and that they see that, you know, what they formerly professed is inadequate for their lives. Now, this should not really surprise us that much. It's interesting, another young musician said, listen, you know, sometimes we idolize people who are leaders in the church. And many times we idolize people who are gifted musicians and songwriters and worship leaders. But let's remember one thing, that when we're journeying through life, no matter how young or old, we're not beyond straying from what God has called us to become. And we need to understand that. As a matter of fact, it's interesting in 1 Kings, Solomon, the wisest man whom the Bible speaks of in the Old Testament, the man who gave us the book of Proverbs, the one who told us that it was the fear of the Lord that was the beginning of wisdom, someone who was noted for his wisdom, who was even a writer that got inspired to put words into the Bible itself. We read this about Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10 and verse 23. King Solomon was greater in riches and in wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. How many think that's a pretty amazing statement? This was God's evaluation of him. It says the whole world sought audience with Sodom to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. How, that, isn't that, how many think that's an amazing statement? And then we read a few verses later in the beginning of chapter 11. King Solomon, however, here's the warning. Loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations, excuse me, about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. In other words, God was so concerned about people being influenced into idolatry that he warned them not to you know, integrate to such a degree with people that have a different value system. It says, nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives, a royal birth, and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Now, you know, isn't that kind of tragic? Here's a person that starts out so good and ended so poorly. It's a tragedy, isn't it? So, so often when we, we look at, you know, people that are, you know, talking about this is my experience, this is where I'm at, and we're so driven by emotions and experience today. That's kind of where their culture's at. But I, I love the authenticity of an early church father by the name of Tertullian. This is what he said. Let me go back. I somehow messed up in where I put the order here. Everywhere honesty confesses that vice is attractive and easy to succumb to. To sin is natural, to repent, unnatural. The way to evil is broad and well supplied with travelers. What's he saying? A lot of people going in the wrong direction. Would not all people take its easy course if there were nothing to fear? So what is Tertullian saying? He's echoing the words we're going to look at this morning. I'm finishing a series that I've been preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Probably the greatest sermon preached by the greatest preacher, our Lord himself, preaching this sermon. 
How many recognize it starts out so beautifully? We have the Beatitudes, the blessings. It starts out with these incredible promised blessings for us, but it concludes the sermon with warnings. Now, I have to sit down and say to myself, you know what? Warnings are just as important as blessings. As a matter of fact, you know, it's far more enticing and encouraging and dynamic to jump up and down and talk about all the blessings that we have in Christ. But I would be remiss as your pastor if I never gave you the warnings that also ensued in Scripture. As a matter of fact, a loving parent will not only instruct and teach their children, but will also warn them of the dangers that are to come. And Jesus, the most loving person, not only expressed the blessings of doing things in the right way, but also cautioned and warned us against this issue of deception. And that's what we're going to look at today. George McLeod says this, what upsets every scene, domestic or political, is not man's desire to be so bad. So far, I have never met a man who wanted to be bad. The mystery of man is that he's bad when he wants to be good. In other words, what he's saying is it's, you know, it's a lot easier to be, you know, bad than it is to be good. It's just as a natural inclination to many times do things that are not necessarily right because it takes something many times more challenging to do the right thing. And we've all experienced that where, you know, it was challenging to do that which was right rather than, you know, just doing the wrong thing. We could go down a list and say it's a lot easier, you know, to be, you know, to complain. Amy talked about that last week. You know, a lot easier to grumble than to express thanksgiving. Isn't that true? There's just naturally, some things just seemed a lot easier to the human heart rather than doing the right thing. So we're going to look at that today. I find it fascinating that as people, we don't get the warnings very well. You know, I was thinking about a story, and I was reading this week the book of Jeremiah. How many have read the book of Jeremiah. How many have actually read Jeremiah? How many, some of you don't like reading the Old Testament, I know, but it's good for you. You need a, you need a dose of it once in a while. It brings a little reality check. And Jeremiah, you know, he's God's spokesperson. He's telling the people, listen, you need to shape up. You need to turn from these idols. Otherwise, there's terrible consequences. Now, Jeremiah wasn't the only person saying that. There were other prophets, and they had been saying it for a while. As a matter of fact, God is so long-suffering, he had been warning them for hundreds of years to smarten up and said, you know, eventually there will come a time when there will be consequences to this behavior. And just because God doesn't always act quickly on what he's warning us about, that doesn't mean God won't act or allow the natural consequences of our bad behavior to affect our lives. And so he warned them that he eventually he would exile them, and we know what happened. The Babylonians came. God said, I'm going to use them as an instrument. They're going to punish my people. You've turned your back on me. You've forsaken me. You've turned to the ways of the people and the land that you possessed. And as a matter of fact, you're just worse than even they were. And so, you know, God felt responsible to address the situation. They went off into exile. But we realized that not all of them went into exile. There was a few that remained in the land. They were kind of the poorest of the poor. And uh, so the Babylonian government actually, you know, created uh, a governor. And eventually, one of the royal family members assassinated the governor. The people were afraid. Now they're ready to run 
because they're afraid of the Babylonians because they know they're in a state of rebellion and they already know what happened. Their nation was totally destroyed. And so they're heading off to Egypt, but they stop in Bethlehem and they say, oh, we got Jeremiah with us here. Jeremiah, why don't you go talk to God and find out what we should really be doing? And I want to pick up that and just share kind of the, the thinking that goes on in our minds sometimes as human beings, especially as people of faith. And so they said to... Um, to Jeremiah said, please hear our petition and pray to the Lord your God for this entire remnant. For as you now see, though we were once many, now only a few are left. Now how many see there's a little irony in this whole story because if you remember the history of Israel, they were slaves in which land? Egypt. And they were many who came out into the promised land. But here now they had disobeyed God and what was the end result? There's only a few remaining. And where are they heading back? To Egypt into the land of captivity. Isn't that fascinating? And so there, you know, I just, I just think there's some powerful illusions going on here. Then they say this, pray that the Lord your God will tell us where we should go and what we should do. Now this sounds really good. They say, you know, we really want to hear from God and we really want to know what we should be doing, okay? So far, so good. Everybody following this? Then they said to Jeremiah, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not act in accordance with everything the Lord your God sends you to tell us. In other words, whatever God says, you know, we're going to act on it. We're going to obey it. He says that whether it's favorable or unfavorable, we'll obey the Lord our God to whom we are sending you so that it will go well with us for we will obey the Lord our God. How many get a sense that they're really emphasizing, listen, we just want to hear from God whatever he says we're going to do. Now that all sounds good. And this is kind of like most Christians. You know, I'm just out here trying to do God's will. You know, until God says something we don't want to do. You know, and then we have a little problem. And we're going to find out this is exactly what happens. And so we read in chapter 43 that Jeremiah comes back and goes, listen, don't go into Egypt. Now, why God said that to them was real simple. Because God was going to use... Babylon, not only to judge Israel, but he was coming down to judge Egypt. So what he was saying to this remnant, stay in the land. Babylon will treat you okay. You don't want to go down into Egypt because what just happened here is going to happen there. If you go down there, you're going to get zapped. You're going to get crushed. You're going to end up in famine and all the bad things you've just run away from. The very thing you're afraid of is actually going to happen to you down there. Now here's their response. Azariah, the son of Hoshiai, and Johanan, son of Korea, and all the arrogant men said to Jeremiah, you are lying. Hey, dude, God didn't say that. Look, the Lord our God has not sent you to say you must not go to Egypt to settle there. In other words, we didn't want to hear this. Now, didn't before they just said, we just want to do what you want us to do. But when, they, but when God tells us something we don't want to do, we go, well, yeah, but that's not God. Isn't that what they were saying? You know, so what they were saying is, we want to serve God on our terms. And I think that's happening a lot in the church today. We're just saying, hey, God, I'm here to serve you, but don't tell me to do something I don't want to do. I'm only here to serve you on my terms. See, that's kind of a, a thinking that's beginning to prevail in the church. It says, so Johanna, son of Korea, and all the army officers and all the people disobeyed the Lord's command to stay in the land of Judah. Ooh. How many know it's not going to go good with them? Never goes good when you disobey God. So what prompted their disobedience? First of all, I think fear was a great factor in the fact that they wanted to go to Egypt. 
Do you know a lot of times our disobedience is driven by our fears? And how many know fear is not faith? Actually, if we really trust God, we don't have to be afraid. But sometimes we are so motivated by fear that we do the wrong thing. And the other thing is, many times we don't do the right thing because we have self-interest involved. This is, our, this is what we really want to do, and therefore we're going to do it. And I, and I see a lot of mental gymnastics to justify, you know, well, you know, God's really in this. I really have a piece about this. You have all these expressions we come up with, but really... Do we really want to do what God wants us to do? And so this is, I'm just bringing this all out today because I think as we take a look at Jesus' warnings here on the Sermon on the Mount, what we're going to discover is that, you know, the Bible not only is filled with promised blessings, but also there are dire warnings. Does anybody know that? And I, I think sometimes we just shy away from the warnings because we get offended by that. Don't ever straighten me up. Don't ever correct me. You know, we get a little annoyed by that. And yet, I think a loving person is going to warn us if they see that we're in danger of doing something that's detrimental to our own spiritual development. And God certainly is going to warn us. Jesus, actually the most loving person, now concludes this amazing sermon with a warning. And he uses three metaphors to do it. And these are metaphors, a powerful picture, warning against making the wrong choices in life. And then he talks about the consequences that happen as a result of making bad choices. Don't you think that's kind of good that he tells us? You know, if you choose the wrong path, it's going to go not too well for you. And so I want to take a look at these three powerful warnings. And the first one is in, in regard to the way we choose. Now notice here, I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles. If you don't have one, there's one in front of you in the pew. In chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, right to the end of the chapter, we're going to look at all those verses. In chapter 7, verse 13, it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. So now Jesus is basically saying there's only two ways. There's only two paths, there's only two roads. One's a narrow road, one's a broad road. That's it, two. Now he says, the broad road, and I think we hear it a lot in our culture, and people say things, all roads lead to the same place. Well, that's not totally true. Now, it's true if you're on the wrong road. That's all leading to the same place. And the same place is destruction. But there is a choice, Jesus says. There's a narrow road and there's a broad road. There's a narrow gate and a broad gate. He says, small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Now, how many already get a sense? This is challenging. He's already saying the minority is going to be on the narrow road and the majority is going to be on the broad road. Let's take a look in our city today. Wouldn't you assent or agree with me that the majority of people are on a broad road? The majority of people are in, they're thinking the same way, they're behaving the same way, they're in agreement about the certain values. That's the broad road. Then there's a narrow way and a very narrow road. And it has boundaries. How many know when you have a road or a path, there's boundaries on the road and a path? How many know that's true? I'm, I used to live in Fort McMurray before they actually started twinning the road. Actually, they didn't even have shoulders on the road when I first went up there. That was a narrow road. And you had to pay attention driving hundreds of kilometers with no shoulders. Right? Don't fall asleep on that road because there's no place to drive but in the muskeg. And you'll be there real quick if you're not paying attention. 
It's a narrow road, and Jesus is talking about that. It already tells me that there's going to be some sort of a vigilance or an alertness or diligence needed to be on this narrow road. D.A. Carson challenges us with our conception of the Christian life and our entrance into it. He says, in much contemporary evangelism, which is really just presenting the gospel, he says this, there's little concern for whether or not God will accept us. See, we make the assumption God's for all of us. Now, I think it's true, and that's, but he say, what he's basically saying is that seems to be the church's focus today. And much concern for whether, and, and much concern for whether or not we will accept him. So let me go back and say it this way. And I'll get him right. There seems to be very little concern about will God accept us. We just assume he will. We're more concerned about having people accept him. Okay? But how about, you know what, if you flip it around and we ask the question, why should God accept me? You know, why, why are we entitled to what God offers? That's what, he's basically throwing this around because we have been so concerned about everybody accepting God that we're kind of dummying it down so everybody can get in. We're kind of lowering the standard so that everybody feels like they, you know, you don't want to offend people. We don't want a Christianity that's offensive. Now, I have to say something. When I read about Jesus and some of the things he said, do you know Jesus offended people? Does anybody actually know that? As a matter of fact, I would even argue the reason he got crucified was he was offensive. He ticked people off. He ticked the wrong people off. And they killed them for it. So obviously Jesus had a standard and was explaining this is what God requires. And some people didn't want to hear it. They didn't like what he said. And he confronted them even though they were quote unquote religious. He just went after them and said, you guys look good on the outside, but on the inside, you're, 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 you're a bunch of hypocrites. Now that's pretty, that's pretty offensive language if you ask me. I'm just pointing that out. See, oh, I, I want to be like Jesus. Well, if you're really like Jesus, you're going to have to stay to his narrow path. That's my point today. Now, the tiny gate actually is a perfect metaphor for, you know, the sermon. You know, Jesus starts out with the Beatitudes, but Alexander McLaren, who is an old Scottish preacher, he says this. Uh, Oh, here's the other part Carson says. Little attention is paid to whether or not we please him and must to whether or not he pleases us. In other words, it seems like we're more concerned about, you know, uh, God has to please me rather than me please him. We've got it backwards. That's what he's trying to get across to us. But let me go on to McLaren. He says this. The first beatitude is a need for a consciousness of spiritual bankruptcy. And the other demands sorrow over sin. In other words, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's, that's, a, that's a recognition of your spiritual bankruptcy. See, we don't come to God saying, hey God, aren't you glad I'm on your side? See, aren't you glad that I'm joining your team, God? I, I can do a lot for you. No, 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 it doesn't work that way. You and I come to God with a sense of brokenness and say, God, I am bankrupt. I have nothing to offer you. I'm a sinner in need of forgiveness. I'm, I need the work of grace to bring transformation into my thinking and into my lifestyle. I need a power to help me overcome addictions in my life and to be set free from wrong thinking and wrong living. See, that's a whole different approach. It's a narrow way in. You know, it, the hardest thing in the world is to admit you're a sinner. That was my biggest problem coming to Christ. 
You know, I grew up in a church and I thought I was a Christian and I thought I was okay until the Spirit of God had to convict me and reveal to me and show me I was lost and I was a sinner and I needed to be saved from my sins. Once I got that inside of me, it changed the whole orientation of my thinking. I came to God in humility and not in arrogance. I asked God to forgive me and I recognized I didn't deserve His forgiveness. And it created inside of me a hunger to do what was right and no longer to live and do what was wrong. That's a big change in a person's life. And that's what we're talking about here. The gate is narrow because so few are willing to come as poor and broken, realizing their own inadequacy and consciousness of sin. Having entered the narrow gateway to life, the traveler finds that the road remains narrow. And it's filled with hardships. Now, I want to just destroy a myth right now. You see, many times we think as Christians, oh, it's going to get easy. It doesn't. I want to argue right now, life is difficult, and being a Christian is actually hard. No one's saying anything. See, you've been told, oh, no, you come to Jesus, everything's going to work, it's going to get simpler. I go, no, it gets more difficult. It's a very narrow path. It's a narrow, it's not just a narrow entrance, it's a narrow road. It doesn't widen out and get easier, it becomes, it's challenging. Listen to what Paul said to the converts that he was preaching to. This is what he says in Acts. They preached the good news in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. Why would you have to encourage people to remain true to the faith? Because there's temptation. It's easy to go off track. There's deception. Don't be fooled. Then he says, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. We never highlight that. But I'm going to argue tonight, or today, the simple thought. We have to change our thinking about challenges, difficulties, trials, and hardships. We're going to see them differently. We're not going to see them as, well, God doesn't love me anymore. Why is he letting me go through this thing? If God really cared about me, why am I going through this stuff? Why am I suffering? I want you to see, number one, God is good and loving, and number two, that the hardships in our life are actually something that we rejoice in. And you're going to say, I don't, that, that sounds masochistic. That sounds like you're, you know, you're beating up on yourself. Why are you thinking this way? Because as I'm going to show you, it'll reveal to you you're a true child of God by the response you have in your hardship. That's what we need to learn from this message. Now, notice uh, when John Newton, the great songwriter and pastor, the slave trader that became a pastor, you know he wrote Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Then he says this, Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. I've been a Christian 42 years. I'm going to just say this flat out. There are dangers, toils, and snares. And you know, know, as I've been walking along, I've noticed people have gotten off the path. I've seen pastors go off the path. I've seen people go off the path. There are dangers out there. There are toils. There are snares. But you know what? God's grace is greater than those hardships and those difficulties. When you and I put our trust in him, allow him to take us through those things, we grow and change and develop in our character. How powerful is that? See? How many have read uh, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? 
Anybody read that? That's a classic book. I'll tell you what it is. It's an allegory of the Christian life. John Bunyan was a preacher who was put in jail because he was preaching. Because in his day, you had to belong to a certain church, state, denomination. And if you didn't, you weren't allowed to preach. And he said, no, I'm called of God. I'm going to preach. And he was, they said, John, if you don't preach, you don't have to stay in jail. You can leave any day. He said, no, I'm called to preach. Now, when you're called to preach, you have to preach. That's your calling. And so he spent 12 years in prison because he was a preacher. But he also wrote letters to his congregation and he wrote that amazing book, Pilgrim's Progress. And he basically shows you that there are all kinds of problems to get to the celestial city. There's all kinds of obstacles you go through. You have to go through the battle of depression and difficulty and, and vanity fair where people are trying to seduce you to the things of this world. All kinds of things are happening that you and I go through to get to the kingdom of God ultimately. So he's painting a whole different picture than what the modern thinking is in the church's world today. We have a wrong understanding, folks. I'm trying to bring us back to the right understanding. Think about what Peter writes to the believers in their challenging times in the first centuries. He says this, be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, we have an enemy, folks. The devil, he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking to someone to devour. How many think that sounds like it's a problem? You know, we have, not only are we battling our own sinful propensities, we're not only battling the lure and the value system of our culture, but we also have a spiritual adversary called Satan. And if we're, you know, falling asleep, so to speak, like the disciples were in the garden, guess what? We're going to get defeated by this adversary. Then he says this, resist him, stand firm in the faith. Some of us, we go, I don't, I feel intimidated by Satan. You don't have to be. The Bible says, greater is he that is in you and me than he that is in the world. That's Satan. The only problem is we have to be alert. We have to be vigilant. We have to be prayerful. We have to be full of the Spirit. We have to be full of the Word. We need to let the Word of Christ dwell within us richly. And then he says, knowing that the family of believers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of what? Sufferings. Well, we don't talk about this. Listen, there are people in our congregation going through great suffering right now. There are people experiencing great trial and great difficulty. And I'm going to challenge us. That's not abnormal. we got to stop thinking that, you know, when you're going through the difficulties, that's abnormal. When, you know, when everything is going great, that's normal. I'm saying, no, it's not. I'm just saying hardship is a part of this life. Change our thinking. Well, let me move on to the second point. And the warnings. It's regard to the false guides or teachers keeping people from the right way. It's interesting that after speaking of the right path that's filled with difficulties, Jesus alerts us to false preachers. And so why does Jesus introduce them here? Well, uh, um, Dale Allison says this, the false prophets prevent others from entering the narrow gate and from following the difficult path. You see, they start saying things like, you know, you know that's, that's not necessary. There's an easier way. I mean, the gospel is meant for our blessing, and they exclude the difficulties and the hardships and the challenges of it. But that's false teaching. We need to understand it as such. Because after a while, we just start accommodating to the culture, and pretty soon we are the culture. Are we following what I'm saying today? Go back to the scriptures. The problem is they masquerade as true, but in reality, they're false. Listen to what 
Paul writes, he says, for such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then that if his servants masquerade as servants of righteousness, their end will be what their actions deserve. So they act like they're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing the right thing. But Jesus says it here in verse 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ferocious wolves. You say, how do I recognize the true from the false? That's a good question. Here's the answer. By their fruit, you will recognize them. He says, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? What's the answer? No. Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. You can know them, he says, by their fruit or the results of their lives. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruits, you will recognize them. Now, fruits are really the results of a person's life. Notice what Jesus said earlier in the sermon. He said, I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How many say that's pretty strong? He was talking to the religious people of his day. He said, these guys are putting on a front. Look what he said in chapter 23. Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. And I just put down here, here Jesus outlines the characteristics of these false prophets as greedy and self-indulgent. So I have to ask myself, you know, as a minister, if you're motivated out of greed and self-indulgence, you're tracking with the false prophets. And Jesus said something else about false prophets. He said, everybody speaks well of them. They never offend anybody. They're always accommodating people. Because they're really not trying to please God, they're trying to please men because it benefits them to please people. They benefit from that. How many recognize that Christianity is an internal faith? It's a transformation from within, not from without. You know, the deceivers are concerned so often, I just put down, by what people think, whereas the righteous person is concerned about what God thinks. How many think there's a big difference? Are you more concerned about what people think or what God thinks? So you have to make that decision in your mind because if you're more concerned about what God thinks, that's going to move you in a direction. That may move you to do and say things that other people may not be happy with. You're just going, well, yeah, you see, my job is to tell you what God says. I don't get to pick the script. How many are tracking with me? I'm just a messenger, just like you are. But you know, a lot of times... We can just say, well, I choose not to say these parts of the message because I know it'll offend people. Am I really being faithful to God's message then? Not really. That's the problem, isn't it? So what is Jesus warning us against? And how does this apply to us? Well, he's warning us against a mere profession of faith or even professions that have miraculous activities. Do you know miracles alone are not the test of what is genuine? Listen to what it says in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. I've got to stop there. Because, you know, a lot of our, our Christianity in North America, we just say, people, if you say the right words, you're in. If you pray these right words, you know, Jesus come into my life, that's it. 
Can I just keep reading the text? It's not just saying, Lord, Lord. It says, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So now he's moved us from, it's not just believing the right thing, it's responding in belief in such a way that I'm obeying what God is saying. And obedience now is the true measure of faith. Wow. As a matter of fact, miracles can deceive people. It says here, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And here's what Jesus says, I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you away from me. Now, how many think that's pretty shocking stuff? You go, hey, these guys are doing miracles. You know, Paul calls them, you know, and why does Jesus call them evildoers when they're doing miracles? Because they're deceiving people. That's why. See, that God gets angry with deception. Okay? The apostle calls them counterfeit miracles, not because the miracles are not real, but because they are a means of deceiving people. How many are, how many are with me right now? You're, you're, you're listening very intently what I'm saying. And what I'm arguing is miracles alone do not reveal the true nature of a person. Because these guys are doing miracles. But Paul writes this in 2 Thessalonians, the coming of the lawless one. That's the Antichrist. But by the way, the Antichrist spirit has been in the church and in the world for 2,000 years. We need to know this. It says the coming of the lawless one will be in the accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power through signs and wonders that will serve what? The lie. We're the children of the truth. Satan is the father of lies. It says here, all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing. They perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So what is it we need to do to kind of have a guard against the false? We have to love the truth. And by the way, loving the truth is loving a person. Jesus is the truth. So we have to love Christ and we have to love his ways and the fact that he is the truth. It says here, for this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion so that they will believe the lie. God allows it to occur, he says. Why? Because he's allowing people to believe what they want to believe, and they'd end up living a life of deception. So what is he warning us against? Two things, self-deception and those who are trying to deceive us. It's pretty challenging, this chapter. He's warning us against this stuff. <clears throat> and then we see here, and so that... All will be condemned who have not believed the truth, but who have delighted in wickedness. Now, you know, when people start lowering the standards of righteousness in the church, you've got a problem. God is a holy God. He still believe, I still believe in holiness because holiness is God's standard. God is holy. And he tells his people, be holy like I'm holy. So when people walk around going, oh, you don't have to behave like that anymore. That's, that's just legalism or that's just this. You know, you can go ahead and sin and, and it's okay. We, God's grace covers it. We know that that's a lie. That's, that's leading people astray. That's a hardened heart that would teach that kind of stuff. <clears throat> you know, some of us like co uh, comics. I, I like peanuts. You know Why? Uh, Schultz was actually a Christian. Sometimes he had great messages. Listen to what he, he I love the story in Peanuts. It's, uh, it's a classroom setting. I should send this to my daughter that's a teacher. In the classroom setting on the first day of the new school year, the students are told to write an essay about returning to class. And in her essay, Lucy, the little girl, you know, she's kind of uh, the nemesis of Charlie Brown, 
she writes, vacations are nice, but it's good to get back to school. There's nothing more satisfying or challenging than education, and I look forward to a year of expanding knowledge. Needless to say, the teacher is totally pleased with Lucy and comments, her, comments to her on her fine essay. In the final frame, Lucy leans over and whispers to Charlie Brown, after a while, you know what sells. <laughs> Some of you will catch on later on, but... <clears throat> The temptation is to say what sells, right? The temptation is to tell people what you know they want to hear. That's what false teachers do. They know what sells, whether it's true or not. When we give in to that kind of a temptation, when we're really saying what sells, we're really giving up the integrity in our own souls. But let me move on to the final warning, which actually is the foundation of our lives and it determines our destiny. This is so critical. You know, one of the great challenges, and one, I would say one of the great tragedies, is people who you thought were Christians who in the end you find out they're not. That's a great tragedy. You know, sometimes you don't always know. How many know that Jesus tells a parable about wheat and weeds growing at the same time? And sometimes when you see those rogue grains, sometimes they look exactly like the real thing. And you just, at the very end, then you notice a little bit of a change, and then you recognize one's the weed, and one's the real deal. But here's what Jesus says. You want to, this to me was so fascinating. One who builds his house on sand while the other one builds, which, which is really building on God, right? You're building on the, on the rock, you're building on God. You build on sand, you're building on something other than trusting in God. But here's the problem. Both houses look the same. As a matter of fact, the only way to distinguish the value and endurance of the house is the response through the adversities of life. Because listen to what it says here. I'm going to read it. It says, therefore, it says, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice like a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Another person, the person who hears and does, the person who is obedient to the word of God and does what God says is building his house on a rock. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on a rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who builds his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Now what you and I don't understand is, in the Middle East, in Israel, in the summertime, all the ground looks hard. It all looks rocky. It all looks like it's a great place to build a house. The only way to know if you're actually building on rock or sand is once the winter season comes and the storm season comes and there's rain and flooding and then you know the kind of foundation you built your house on. Okay, are you tracking there? So these guys knew this. And what Jesus is saying is, I want you to know who's building on the rock are the people who's doing what I'm asking them to do. Victor Frankl, some of you might know, recognize his name. He was an, uh, a survivor of Auschwitz. He wrote a book called The Meaning of Life. This is what he wrote. He said this. I'm trying to get there. Okay. Just as a small fire is extinguished by the storm, whereas a large fire is enhanced by it, okay? You tracking? I said that, Patty, I'll try not to say it again. 
She said, I say it a lot, so. Likewise, a weak faith is weakened by predicaments and catastrophes, whereas a strong faith is strengthened by them. See, you and I look at adversity the wrong way. We see it as a big problem in our life. What we need to see it as James says, count it all joy. Because you see, when adversity comes into our life, and by the way, it's going to come into all of our lives. That's what I'm trying to tell you. It's not if it will, it's when it does. And when it does, when you and I are just like, okay, God, I don't know what's going on, but my faith is in you. I know that you're there. I know I'm going to trust you. I know we're going to get through this. I know you're going to deliver me somewhere down the line. I know I'm going to grow through this experience. I know that you still love me. I know that you're good. I'm not bitter about this. How many are beginning to see something? See, that's the person whose life has been built on a rock. They're the person who says, God, whatever you want is fine with me because I belong to you. You see, I was so struck this week. I've been meditating on a text of scripture. It says in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Does anybody know what crucifixion means? I'm dead. I've been nailed to a cross. I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the hope, which I, the hope that I have is because of the Son who loved me and gave himself for me. That, that's my life. My life is Christ. And that's where we have to come back to as a true follower of Jesus. We say, you know what? I belong to you, Jesus. Your will is what I want in my life. So what is Jesus really pointing out? That the religious experience is a counterfeit if it doesn't lead to obedience to God's will in our life. And the real issue in all of our lives is simply this. Will I do God's will? Now, how many, you know, it's really easy to do God's will when I want to do God's will. But how many, how many have ever had that moment in your life when God's will and your will collided? Anybody else? Oh, raise your hands. Does that ever happen? Every hand should be in the air. I'll tell you why. Because every time you and I sin, we've just gone against God's will. So obviously, we have a problem sometimes with God's will. We fall, are you with me? Yeah. Okay, we struggle with it. See, the human part struggles sometimes with the Father's will. Jesus, the sinless Son of God, struggled with the Father's will in Gethsemane. You know, he, he wanted to save the world, but there had to be a different way to do it than to die on a cross. If there's any other way, let's do it that way. Let's renegotiate this, Father. But not what I want. Your will be done. See, there's something that happens when you and I have to surrender to what God wants. What do we, where do we find what God wants? In the word of God. It's not in the opinions of other Christians. It's in the word of God. What does God's word say? And that's what I need to be doing. And sometimes I struggle with it. Sometimes you struggle with it. But the child of God then has to make that huge decision. It's, it's that daily petition you know, where we say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Think about it this, this morning. Do you say, Lord, your will be done? God says, I want you not to forsake the assembling of yourself. Okay, I'm in church this morning. I'm not forsaking. That's your will. When people get up in the morning and say, should I go to church or shouldn't I go to church? What kind of a question is that? It's weird to me. I know what the will of God says. If I'm not, you know, sick or I'm, I'm, a, I'm far away, that's, that's what I should be doing. That's the will of God. Real simple. 
I don't, have, I don't question that anymore. That's, that's been long ago out of my mind. This is God's will. See, will of God. We need to understand that. Let me close with this. We have to ask ourselves, what are we building our life on? You know, I love history. I, I, I just love it, and I'll tell you why. Because I want to learn from it. I want to learn what to do and what not to do. I want to learn from other people's experiences so I don't have to make the mistake myself, okay? And think back a ways to what World War II was like. Christians in Germany. Christians are in Germany. There's a state church called the Lutheran Church. It's the predominant church. You're either Catholic or Lutheran primarily, but mostly Lutherans. And the Lutherans were preaching the gospel of God's grace. And Bonhoeffer was a pastor and a theologian, and he said, we're messing up with this preaching, guys. We've told the whole nation that they're saved by God's grace, but we, we expect nothing from them. He said, we're, we're, we're destroying them because now they think they're okay and they can do anything they want. It almost sounds eerily familiar to me. Is there, is there any resonation? Is something resonating so Bonhoeffer writes a book called The Cost of Discipleship. Anybody read that book? I've read that book. Very powerful. So most of you haven't. Let me just give you a few quotes. Because I wrote this. The obedience is the true measure of genuine faith. I believe that. You know, but he writes this. The restoration of the church will surely come only from a complete lack of compromise in a life lived in accordance with the Sermon on the Mount in the discipleship of Christ. Cheap grace, he says, is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. What's repentance? A change of mind. You know, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. What's he basically saying? Well, we're just forgiving everybody, and then they're just living like they want to. He goes, that's, that's cheap grace. He goes, you can't do that. How many know there's a, you know, grace is costly. Does anybody know grace is costly? What did it cost God to give you his gift of forgiveness? His son. He, he gave up his life. And so what does he require from us? Our lives. That's pretty costly. How many catching on? He's asking, actually, he's saying, I'm giving up my life for you, but I'm asking from you to give up your life for me. And until you do that, you don't really experience the grace of God to work in your life in a powerful way. And that's why sometimes we struggle with all kinds of things in our lives because we are not surrendered. But when we just finally say, God, I'm giving up this, you know, this game of trying to be in control and do my own thing and having God on my terms. Listen, you cannot have the kingdom of God on your terms. You have to give up your life. You have to surrender completely to him so that God's grace can flow freely into your life so you can experience the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what's lacking today in so many lives. We're just accommodating sin in our lives and we're justifying it and we're living in a state of self-deception. Oh, that God would set us free. But half the time we don't even realize it. Because the nature of sin is it hardens our hearts and it's deceptive and we think we're okay. And we do that which is right in our own eyes and we think we're doing okay. There's a way that seems right in a man's eyes but it leads to death. 
And with that, I'm going to have a stand and close in prayer. And here's the prayer. It's real simple. I don't even trust myself to examine my own heart. I need the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And so I'm going to pray the prayer the psalmist prayed this morning. And maybe some of you will say, I'm going to join you, Pastor, when he said, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. Search me, O God, and deliver me so that I can be free. How would you like to walk in real freedom and power? How would you like to experience the power of God's grace flowing in your life? Because you know, there's no more game anymore. It's just total surrender. You're going, I'm experiencing all that God wants for me. You know, I remember there were times in my life God said, I don't want you to do this. And it wasn't even a sinful thing. God said, I want you to lay that down for me. That's a time waster. I don't want you to waste time there anymore. Just lay it down for me. And I didn't want to. I was wrestling with God because it was one of my youthful dreams, one of my kid dreams, and I didn't want to lay it down, and I had a wrestling match with God. And finally I said, okay, God, I'm going to lay that dream down. You know, we're so, it's so silly sometimes what we want to do. We want our way. But the moment we lay it down, a new freedom and power comes into our lives. It's the way it works. So how many here say, you know what? I want to do it God's way, not my way. I want to serve God on his terms, not my terms. See, the Israelites, I think the problem they have was they're trying to serve the world, which was the idols, and God. A lot of Christians are trying to compromise. They want both lives. It doesn't work. No, you got to surrender and say, okay, God, let's do, let's do it on your terms. And then something dynamic starts happening in your life. So let's pray. Father, search our hearts, O oh Lord. See if there be any wicked way in us. Lead us into the way everlasting. Help us to walk on that narrow path. Even though there are challenges and hardships, Lord, keep us there. So that at the end of this race that we're racing, the end of this conflict that we're in called life, that we will stand before you and hear those amazing words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You ran the course. You kept the faith. And there's been laid up for you a crown. What an amazing thing. God giving us a crown because we've run this race so well. I pray today that all that are hearing my voice will say amen and amen in Jesus' name, amen.